Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. I am your host, Danielle. Today, we will talk about the history of Shenandoah National Park. This is the second of two parts to end our series on Shenandoah. We will continue to hear from three historians. Sarah Gregg from the University of Kansas focuses on land use policy. Katrina Powell at Virginia Tech researched letters written by families displaced due to the park's creation. Audrey Horning is an anthropology and archaeology professor at William & Mary in Virginia. She conducted a multi-year survey of rural mountain settlements in the Virginia Blue Ridge from 1995 to 1998. In part two, we will hear about the Civilian Conservation Corps' role in the development of the park. President Roosevelt's visit to the CCC camps, Audrey Horning's archaeological survey of three mountain settlements, the tragic fires of 2000, and finally, hikes and tips on how and where to see evidence of Shenandoah's cultural history. The stock market crashed in 1929, followed by the Depression, 1929 to 1941. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected in 1932, which brought the New Deal and the Civilian Conservation Corps, which the park celebrates in many ways. Sarah Gregg explains the CCC and how it affected Shenandoah Park. The CCC was a uh, essentially a relief and public works initiative uh, that was created at the very beginning of the New Deal. Um, it was one of uh, Roosevelt's uh, actually innovations as governor of the state of New York. Um, he created something called the Temporary Emergency Relief Administration as governor, which attempted to essentially implement his ideas about conservation planning and use them to uh, relieve the suffering of uh, Depression-era New Yorkers. And so in March of 1933, shortly after Roosevelt's inauguration, Congress passed the Civilian Conservation Corps legislation, which essentially created um, a new agency of government operated under the auspices of the U.S. Army that was designed to employ young men between the ages of 17, or I think it was 18 and 25. And they were to be paid $25 a month, I believe, and $20 of that was sent directly home. And the the men involved who were working for the Corps then were able to have a little bit of discretionary money. But they lived in military-style camps, and they lived under military-style discipline with the idea that these men whose bodies and minds had been underused during the early years of the Depression would then uh, find a way to turn themselves to productivity. Um, In fact, I lectured on the first phase of the New Deal in my undergraduate history class, and I made the case to my students that when the crash hit in uh, 1929, there had been almost a decade of agricultural depression, and crop prices were really low. Farm income uh, was, you know, relatively low, but dropped precipitously over the course of the 1920s. And unemployment, which had been low in the cities at the time of the crash in 1929, it was just around 2% in the late 1920s then skyrocketed by 1932 to 25% of the, at least 25% of the population. And most of that you want to think of as heads of households, fathers, 
um, as opposed to mothers or children. And so these boys, these young men in 1933 and four and five, many of them had actually never held a job or certainly a regular job because the jobs were so, uh, uh, there was so much competition for jobs. To imagine a quarter of the employable workforce out of work meant that essentially people who didn't have, who couldn't make a claim to necessity weren't going to be getting jobs. And no matter how hard scrabble a family was, they still, um, Boy, young men and uh, and women in a family weren't going to be employed. So the CCC was essentially targeting these these young men, trying to find a way to give them a means in as uh, a skill set, but also a path into the workforce that would serve them after the immediate crisis of the Great Depression had passed. My absolute favorite story um, of the Shenandoah actually. Um, relating to Roosevelt, at least, is of the his very first visit to a CCC camp. Um, and that took place in uh, the summer of 1935, I want to say August. And he went through and visited the CCC, uh, I think five of the CCC camps um, along the road, and he ate lunch with the enrollees. And um, the New York Times reported on this. And if I remember the story correctly, um, he had a lunch of uh, steak and uh, green beans and apple, or uh, excuse me, iced tea and apple pie. And um, he celebrated the work of these men who were working in the in the woods and uh, planting trees and building uh, trails and. Uh, roadways, and he celebrated the fact that these men were finding a new lease on life through the efforts um, of the the New Deal state. And the the weight that these guys uh, gained over the course of the period of their of their um, employment by the CCC. I think some of the figures come back that the average enrollee gained 16 pounds in his first six months. Uh, in this, in the core, because these guys were working, uh, you know, in manual labor along a work day, but they were also eating three square meals a day. And so Roosevelt's tour through the park was designed to highlight not only um, this uh, conservation effort, but also the effects of conservation projects uh, on the, the people of the country. And then the effects of those combined efforts on the larger American uh, populace and the promise that held. Lots of young men were given jobs in the park, especially building Skyline Drive, and, and of course, in the work of raising many of the homes that were um, vacated. And so, um, the, and so the history of the CCC in the park is really interesting, um, and, but many of the young men who were hired to do that work did not, were not hired locally. They came from Pennsylvania or New York. And so it's a great success story for the CCC generally, but also you could you can see how maybe some resentment would build that some of the local men were not hired to do some of that work. And, be, you know, because, it, as, you, as you point out, because it was during the Depression, having to move in the middle of the Depression and figure out an alternative place to live um, was really difficult for people. So 
the signs of what the park once was, I think, are you know, very variably hard to find um, or easy to find, depending on where you're looking. I mean, one of the things that um, happened as more and more people became aware of the history of human habitation in the park is people went looking for artifacts or relics. And so the Park Service has increasingly become careful about um, about masking some of these home sites in an effort to retain their uh, their integrity, I suppose. Um, but you can be walking around, come across a stone wall, although there are not so many. You can find cellar holes, um, chimneys in some cases, um, cemeteries. There are a couple of places where there are commemorative plaques placed by uh, descendants of park residents. Um, Along the Corbin and Nicholson Hollow trails, there are a couple of restored cabins. And then, of course, when you go deeper into the woods, you can you can sometimes get a feel for what the park was like. I mean, certain parts of the area were unsustainably logged, of course, um, in the traditional uh, fashion. But other places actually were hard enough to reach that the, the feeling of the park as it was um, before the 1930s is still rather um, easy to to uh, to sense, I suppose. The place I would say that I have felt most um, most like I was in the early 20th century park, I suppose, is up on Old Rag, where you know there is this real sense of space and of um, of vista that is relatively evocative of the look of this space in the 1920s, let's say, when Pollock was bringing tourists up into the mountains. One of my favorite stories about the, the Skyland uh, Lodge and Pollock's entertainment up in the uh, Blue Ridge are stories of his annual Fourth of July bonfire, which would use often around 300 cords of wood um, and, you know, represents a centerpiece of the social season um, in the, in the Blue Ridge or at least at Skyland. And when I think about the scale of that kind of a fire and the amount of physical labor that went into logging all of those cords of wood and then what it must have looked like in terms of spectacle to burn it, it does remind me of the impact of free uh, conservation uh, management of forest lands. One of the things that's fascinating about the Shenandoah landscape is that um, this was a place that had already been crossed by the uh, Appalachian Trail uh, earlier in the 1920s. And so the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club had cut a lot of trails across the Blue Ridge uh, primarily at the AP, but um, also access trails moving up to the Appalachian Trail from some of the valleys. So um, what the CCC did was it went and improved those trails, um, but it also cleared out a lot of the scrub. Um, it built um, or it, it planted uh, or CCC enrollees planted, you know, tens of thousands of trees. 
Um, and then they contributed in a consequential way to the construction of Skyline, Skyline Drive. So if you're looking for the CCC in the Shenandoah, I would say you don't really need to look much further than Skyline Drive. Most of the um, that roadway was built using CCC labor. And if you look at those masonry walls along the roadway, you know, those are CCC road or walls. Um and a number of the of the additional paths um, into the mountains from uh, the the less traveled um, parts of the of the Shenandoah Valley and the Piedmont are also CCC built uh, paths. Now we will hear from archaeologist Audrey Horning. She will describe her work and findings from investigating material remains of three hollows: Weekly, Nicholson, and Corbin hollows. What she found did not concur with the stereotypes described in the study conducted in the 1930s. So in, the reason that these three hollows were chosen, they're in the central district of the park on the eastern side of the Blue Ridge. Um, and they were very, very basic. thing would be like finding automobile parts in the middle of these hollows, which certainly suggests that people were living um, in the 20th century. So... Because the park had mainly focused on um, surveying and looking for um, the pre-European human remains and Native American remains, this was an opportunity to actually look at the more recent um, human past of the park, immediate pre-park, so 18th, 19th, early 20th centuries. So that's why this particular area was chosen. It was also chosen because it was one of the few places in the park where all of the family homes and buildings were not um, all dismantled at the time of the park establishment in the late 1930s. So there was an effort at the time to leave some traces standing, which meant, of course, there were materials to go and to look at. I focused on on three mountain hollows, so Nicholson Hollow, Corbin Hollow, and Weekly Hollow. Um, and they are, to some extent, situated in very different kinds of landscapes, albeit obviously still up. Um, in the in the in the hollows, and I suppose what what we found was what anywhere else you would expect to find, which is lots and lots of traces of of different um, human lives and activities, remains of houses, remains of people's material culture, remains of people's agricultural practices, remains of industries, um, you know the the, the full range, and in particular with a lot of the material culture, uh, again really contradicting some of the stereotypical images that were peddled at the time. Um, So in addition to looking at what was actually out there on the ground, um, I also spent an awful lot of time in all of the local courthouses tracing back ownership of the land. So, you know, we knew we could say that um, Weekly Hollow was first, uh, lands were patented there in the 1750s, and uh, we combined that with the archaeological evidence, which indicated people did move um, into that area at the time. Doing all that property research was really critical because another one of the images at the time of the park creation was that none of the people living in this area owned their properties, that they were all squatters. Uh, and that's patently untrue because the, the documentary trail is there in the local courthouses of people buying and selling and having legal title to their land. Um, legal title that in some cases was obscured or denied in the early 20th century. In addition to the documentary side and the survey side of the equation and and some excavation as well, I also talked to um, 
uh, a number of um, people who were removed from the park as children, as well as some of their descendants. So that I got, um, you know, a very strong sense of the importance of this work and the importance of um, the uh, the sites and their stories being told in the present. Um, and in a few wonderful opportunities, I was able to take um, people back up to where their house had been when they were children before they were before they were compelled to leave for the creation of the park. Uh, and that was. Um, really quite a special experience to have somebody back there talking about what it was like growing up in that environment, but looking at it, you know, in, instead of seeing fields and neighbors and cars and, and everything else that was part of the bustling life in the hollows, you know, they're seeing trails and, and trees and maybe just bits of a foundation. Uh, so, of course, it was, you know, they had to work to put themselves back into the past um, and I was able to go along with them, uh, and that was quite a tremendous experience. It was it was very emotional for well for everybody involved really to be to be able to be part of that was was um, you know quite a humbling experience. What was so useful to me about the opportunities I had to take people back to these landscapes is, you know, as an archaeologist I might be recording let's say a stone foundation for a house that was, you know, a log house with you know just a, you know few rooms, I'm looking at a foundation, it's 20 foot by 20 foot, and in my mind, you know, it's not that big, you know, it's it's a small house, uh, as I record it, you know, with all of my measurements, but take someone back there who grew up in that house, and I remember one woman in particular talking about, you know, once she got her eye into where she was, you know, it was remembering, you know, who did what and where, and and all the memories that came flooding back for her, everything was big. You know, this is the big room where my parents slept. And this is the, the big room where we, you know, um, had our meals. This is the big porch where we'd sit and we'd look up at the mountain. We'd look, you know, we'd see our neighbors. We'd see people coming down the lane. Uh, and so, you know, for her, it, it was a big space. Um, and that's how it felt. And that's how it was remembered. That's the kind of insight that, you know, many archaeologists don't get because we so often work on sites where we don't have the privilege of talking to people who experienced, you know, what it was like to live on one of those um, in, in one of those dwellings. I personally only ever received very positive, welcoming, you know, uh, conversations with people, um, in part because what I was endeavouring to do was to. I suppose, you know, bluntly to set the record um, straight in terms of what the evidence actually suggested about the lives of people up there as opposed to what was written about them in the 1930s. Uh, and so, you know, um, in that sense, I was working with them. Um, the fact that I learned a tremendous amount from being able to talk with them was, you know, was very beneficial for the project and for me personally. Um, so I certainly didn't feel like I was necessarily doing anybody any favors we were working together to try to understand and, and present um, a different story. You know, at the same time, there you know there are some stories about life in the hollows that you know maybe not everybody wants to talk about. You know, for example, um, there's uh, plenty of evidence in the documentary record and the archaeological record for the practice of slavery in the Blue Ridge and within you know the boundaries of what's now Shenandoah National Park. And that's always a hard topic to talk about, and that's not always you know how people might choose to remember what their ancestors were doing. But, you know, it's it's my responsibility as an archaeologist to 
to tell as many stories as I can based on the evidence, even if some of them might be um, a bit uncomfortable. But again, it was a it was a real privilege to be able to work with um, a lot of the descendants and, and again some of the folks who did grow up in the park area. And um, I think it's you know it, it's absolutely clear that many of them you know were they were disenfranchised and, and a disservice was done to their actual you know to their lives and 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 that of their of their parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents when they were presented in ways that that were not true to the to the realities, not true to the documents, not true to the material culture, uh, and not certainly not true to their memories. Audrey describes the three hollows, what life was like, and how they were different. There are kinship ties across all three hollows. You know, they're adjacent to one another. Um, you know, people moved in between and around them. Um, and again, as I said, uh, kinship ties and some of the same, you know, family surnames across the three hollows. However, um, the landscapes are very different in the three hollows. Weekly Hollow is actually um, a valley. In other words, it's got two ends. And it had a road running through it from the 18th century. So it's a place that was um, always, you know, had very uh, clear and ready transportation and communication um, to, you know, surrounding um, settlements. It also, because Weekly Hollow is really, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the bit in between Old Rag Mountain, which is the, um, the granite mountain that so many people go in and hike up. It's very distinctive with its ragged top and the main Blue Ridge. So there's an extent of, an extent of, of good, um, reasonably level, fertile land in the base of Weekly Hollow. So it always supported fairly extensive agricultural activities. Um, and as, as early as, as at least the, certainly by the late 18th century, possibly even a few decades earlier than that, um, there was a concentrated settlement um, in the village of Old Rag within Weekly Hollow. So by the early 20th century, there's a post office, there's a school, there's a shop, um, there are churches. You know, it, it's, it's a bustling little village community. Um, and you know the, the the road through the hollow is accessible by automobiles. Um, you know, so that's so a lot of what people were doing in that hollow. You know, was um, you know their affordances, if you like, from that environment. You know, they can move around, they can drive around, they can have um, businesses, sawmills. There was a grist mill there in the very late 18th century. So diverse set of experiences. What you would expect, I suppose, for rural America, almost anywhere. Nicholson Hollow um, is um, it is a proper hollow. Uh, the Hughes River runs through it, and also in Nicholson Hollow, there's um, reasonably good um, extent of fertile agricultural land along the bottomlands of the Hughes River. Uh, and then also, what you would see any visitor going out there today, walking through. Uh, Nicholson Hollow, you'd see um, many, many, many stone walls and terracing where people moved up from the bottomlands and intentionally altered the terrain, the landscape, to um, support agriculture. So if you look at the documentary records for Nicholson Hollow, you can see people are, um, they're farming, you know, 100-acre farms, and these are all things that they bought and paid for. Their deeds are, are in the Madison County Courthouse. So, you know, it's a reasonably productive um, agricultural landscape. 
there's evidence for um, legal production of alcohol from their 19th century distilleries. The traces of them are out there in the hollows. They're they're big. These are you know these are major businesses. Same with um, sawmills. So diverse set of things, but more agricultural in Nicholson Hollow than in uh, Weekly Hollow. Nicholson Hollow has some early settlement, uh, late 18th to early 19th century. There's evidence for um, the practice of slavery as well within Nicholson Hollow. A uh, farmer having um, two to three enslaved individuals uh, working for them, which is an important story to be told. The evidence for that really is, is, is in many ways, a horrific thing to encounter, which is to go into the, you know, the county courthouse and discover that along with property that's being bought and sold uh, or property that's being willed, you also have the names of individuals, okay, because they were passed along as property. So we have that documentary trace. And there's, there's one site that we were able to look at in Nicholson Hollow where we have the documentary evidence for... Um, uh, a number of enslaved individuals living on the property and in the household. Um, there is a uh, small log structure which uh, may have served as um, where they lived their household, the slave quarter, if you like, which is adjacent to the main family home. Uh, so we did do some excavations there, um, you know, but you don't you don't generally find something that just jumps out and says, you know, this is what I'm associated with in terms of somebody's identity or that practice. But combining the sources suggests um, fairly strongly that it is connected with the um, the habitation of, of the enslaved people. So that's Nicholson Hollow um, against you know agricultural base pretty fertile, some varied uh, industries taking place. Corbin Hollow is very different. Um, Corbin Hollow is very narrow, very steep. It's really just a, um, a, an offshoot of Weekly Hollow along um, Broken Back Run. Uh, Broken Back Run is very aptly named, aptly named because, again, it's steep and it's rocky. So the first documentary evidence for anybody actually living in the area of Corbin Hollow, it really is sort of moving upwards from Weekly Hollow. Uh, it's not really a great place. So in terms of the communities that were written about in the 1930s in Corbin Hollow, they're all living up at the top of the hollow, so up towards the top of the Blue Ridge. This is not a place you know, with any depth of soil where you can really realistically cultivate uh, much in the way of crops. And the archaeological evidence suggests that people only moved up there fairly recently, so from probably the 1880s at the earliest um, into the 1930s. So what were they doing up there? Well, um, for one thing, in terms of artifacts, you don't find any agricultural tools in the way, you know, that finding bits of, of plows and um, chains and locks and hoes and such like was, you know, was common in the other two hollows. Instead, what I think uh, was happening is that um, some families moved up to the top of Corbin Hollow, not to farm, but because of proximity to the Skyland Resort, because they are near um, the the roadway that would have gone to the resort, and they are in effect um, engaging in, in wage labor. At the resort, so they are, uh, you know, working in, you know, in the uh, landscaping or working in in the restaurant or doing whatever some construction activity, whatever needs to be done 
to support this late 19th, early 20th century resort. So they don't have anything to fall back on in terms of their subsistence uh, in times of economic hardship. And that you can see that in the architecture in the upper part of the hollow, you know, fairly large farmhouses in Weekly Hollow, Nicholson Hollow, uh, very small log buildings in the upper part of Corbin Hollow. And the nice thing about um, the whole national park system is it's federal land, which means it is um, subject to federal laws. And um, among those federal laws are laws that uh, protect cultural resources. So all of the sites, all of the material culture, the landscapes, you know, the stone walls, all of that is is protected, uh, which means people can go and observe and learn, um, but it's against the law to disturb any of that so that it will be there, obviously, for um, future generations. So um, artifacts should not be moved, um, but they can be appreciated. So they are um, they are protected. One of the challenging discussions always when you have above ground uh, remains, especially bits of buildings, you know, like uh, the log structures um, that are there, is do you, um, how do you best preserve that information? Do you try to maintain these structures? Do you repair them? Do you reconstruct them? Or do you just let them um, decay naturally? And that was the policy for decades, uh, what was called um, benign neglect. Uh, and uh, uh, one uh, uh, number of people have pointed out that there's nothing benign about neglect if you care about something. But nevertheless, um, by and large, the sites have been allowed to um, deteriorate. So because so many had already been lost, it was also a really important time to try to chronicle what was still remaining because they don't last for nothing lasts forever. As any homeowner knows, you have to constantly keep doing maintenance. There are some uh, materials from the Survey of Rural Mountain Settlement, which was the formal title of the project, uh, that are on display at the Bird Visitor Center uh, up at Big, Big Meadows. And I'm very, you know, I'm very glad about that, very pleased about that. There's also signage along Skyline Drive, uh, which also um, discusses not just the, the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps, but also the people who lived in the park before its creation. Uh, one of my favorite all-time artifacts is on display at the Bird Visitor Center, uh, and that was a toy ray gun, uh, which we found on uh, Corbin Hollow site. Um, I know the names of the children who probably played with it, uh, and it was it became a very evocative artifact simply because its very existence in Corbin Hollow so utterly materially contradicted all of those writings about you know the Hollow people you know not being of the 20th century when you have you know a toy 25th century ray gun uh, which was you know probably gotten through mail order catalog or whatever else but it clearly demonstrated that you know people were very much you know, up to speed with contemporary pop culture in the 1930s. So visitors can go and, and, and see that uh, ray gun on display um, and a number of other objects that belong to families living in the park. Audrey Horning conducted her survey from 1995 to 1998. There were terrible fires in 2000, which destroyed most of what she chronicled. One of Audrey's articles describes one of the homes that was intact at the time of her survey. 
Tara Weekly's home and hen house was accidentally missed by the CCC. Otherwise, they would have taken it down. Tragically, it was destroyed by the fires. That was all very depressing, I have to say. Um, there were a number of fires which were actually intentionally set um, in the vicinity of Old Rag Mountain and the Hollows um, in 2000. I mean, fire is, you know, fire happens naturally. Fire is something that um, a lot of, um, obviously, park ecologists spend a lot of time thinking about because uh, it can be quite beneficial. Uh, but when they are set intentionally, uh, you know, there's, there are different management practices and, and what to do about it. Um, I heard about the fires uh, when I was sitting at my desk in the radiocarbon lab at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland. I'm looking on the computer and tracking these fires. I'm on the phone talking to people, um, emailing, because I knew uh, that there were very vulnerable structures in these three hollows that if the fire went through there, they would be destroyed. Um, and in fact, that did happen. Um, the Those fighting the fire were able to protect certain structures. For example, the um, reconstructed uh, Corbin cabin in Nicholson Hollow, because they knew about it, uh, but trying to you know get the information out and where the buildings are. And then also, you know, uh, Cultural resources are just one variable when it comes to decision-making uh, in fighting fires. And so, you know, sadly, there were a number of buildings that I had recorded that were completely destroyed by the fire, even though anyone who goes to that part of the park today, you'd, you'd have to look hard to see traces of those wildfires. Um, what tended to happen with the log buildings is that they, you know, they're packed with leaves, you know, they're very dry. These are chestnut log, log structures, some of which built in the 19th century. Um, and they just burn very, very quickly, even though trees around them might not um, go on fire. So it was, you know, I was very sad about it. Um, and everybody, of course, kept saying, well, at least you recorded them. And that is true. Um, and that record exists. But, you know, the structures no longer do. I flew back pretty quickly. Um you know, after the fires were out, just to go with, with colleagues in the park and assess the damage. And, and um, the, the Terra Weekly site, that was sad because it was the only place in Weekly Hollow where there were still any upstanding log remains, um, and then they were gone. Uh, and there was another one that made me um, quite sad. It was one of the first log structures I, I'd encountered the first time I'd gone into Nicholson Hollow along the Hannah Run Trail. It was a former home of, um, I believe, Emily and Newton Nicholson, and it was just a, a very evocative site, and it was the, the log house still standing to full height, and it was it was completely gone. So, um, on, I suppose on a more positive note, um, the, the fire did actually expose sites that we didn't know about, because it you know, it, it, it created openings in the landscape so we could see things that we hadn't previously uh, known about. So I suppose there's there's always a, an upside to every, every story. Visitors to the park do not need to go far to see evidence of the park's historical past. Skyline Drive is the most obvious example. There are also many trails where material remains may be seen, including hiking trails that go through the hollows. The Bird Visitor Center has an exhibit where artifacts are displayed. Anywhere anybody goes in Shenandoah National Park, they will see evidence of the park's historical past, whether they realize it or not. <laughs> um, the park itself is a creation of recent history. Um, you know, it's a created landscape of the 20th century in terms of Skyline Drive and 
and uh, walls and vistas and, and park amenities. So all of that is uh, historic. Any, any, almost any trail you walk on in the park, you will see stone walls. You will see some of the terraces I referenced earlier. Um, you will see traces of mining. There were major mines in the Shenandoah area. Um, there were copper mines near the Three Hollows we've been talking about, the major manganese mine further south in Augusta County. Um, there were major uh, iron furnaces. Uh, iron industries, um, particularly on the valley side, in, in, including one, um, uh, the Mount Vernon Furnace, which had considerable upstanding remains, and it was actually operated uh, in the early 19th century with an enslaved uh, labor force. So uh, some of the, the, the historical sites are really quite obvious and in your face. Others you might have to look a little bit more closely for. Um, most people, wherever they hike, will... Um, maybe be surprised by catching a glimpse of a standing chimney through the trees. You know, they blend in quite well. It's 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 better to hike in the wintertime when you get a better sense of um, chimneys and house remains and, and so forth. The three hollows that we've been discussing all have trails that run through them at different levels of, of difficulty. Um, you know, Corbin Hollow being the steep and narrow hollow that I talked about earlier is also a harder hike. Um, Weekly Hollow, because it has still has a road running through it, it's now a fire road, um, is, a, is a much easier hike. Um, and even walking along the Old Rag Fire Road, which is the one that goes through Weekly Hollow now, um, all you have to do is gl- glance on either side of that road and you'll see traces of former homes um, and field boundaries. Uh, Nicholson Hollow is, is a lovely hike. You can go all the way from the top skyline drive down five miles to the outlet of Nicholson Hollow uh, outside the park boundary. Um, and the whole series of trails that also go through Nicholson Hollow, um, Hot Run uh, or Hot Short Mountain Trail, the Hannah Run Trail, um, uh, both go through, uh, and the Robertson Mountain Trail also goes through Nicholson Hollow. So they're, they're crisscrossed, and, and those trails themselves are, for the most part, they follow um, the older roads, um, the road that people would have driven their cars from one end of Nicholson Hollow out uh, along, which now you can only walk on, um, and and trails that some of which may have you know much earlier um, native origins. So starting with with Weekly Hollow, um, you can you can come into that hollow from two ends. One is is uh, Berry Hollow, the other is um, Nicholson Hollow. But if if you just simply go and look for um, Old Rag, the Old Rag Mountain Trail uh, comes off of uh, the main weekly hollow road, so it's the old rag fire road. That one uh, will take you uh, again through the hollow, past many of these sites. You can go up old rag mountain, get a nice view down over the whole area that was that was once settled. Coming off of weekly hollow, if you wanted to explore Corbin Hollow, there's the Corbin Hollow Trail, and also the Robertson Mountain Trail, and both of those will go up past um, traces of of where people were living at the time of, of park creation. Um, those two trails, the, the um, Corbin Hollow Trail and the um, Robertson Mountain Trail, uh, meet up with the uh, Old Rag Fire Road, which goes up to Skyline Drive. So um, lots of different ways to, to get into that area. Uh, Nicholson Hollow, if you're coming from outside the park boundary, it's uh, Route 600, and it's the Nicholson Hollow Trail. Go all the way up, and in fact, it will come out on Skyline Drive 
uh, after many miles and uh, a fair few um, thousand feet in elevation. The Corbin Cabin Cut-Off Trail um, will take you from uh, Skyline Drive down into the heart of um, Nicholson Hollow to where the restored George and Beulah Corbin Cabin is, which can be rented out from the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. Um, that's about a mile, but it's very steep. Um, the Hannah Run Trail uh, comes down also from Skyline Drive and then meets the main Nicholson Hollow Trail. Um, the Hot Short Mountain Trail takes you into the whole what's known as Hazel Country. So there's a whole series of different trails and ways that you can create um, very nice uh, circuit hikes through the zone. And the, you know, the park guides um, are you know give very good information in terms of mileage, um, elevation changes, and um, sometimes also make note of uh, some of the historic sites that, that people would be passing. I would really recommend going on a ranger-guided hike. One of my favorites is up at Big Meadows, and there's an old family site um, near Big Meadows, and so you get the history of Big Meadows um, in terms of its um, Amer- in terms of its archaeological history and what they know about Big Meadows um, uh, in terms of American Indians living there. Um, but then you also can see an old family site um, from the 1930s, and the park ranger will tell you about that history and show you some photographs of, of it along the way. And then also what's there is the old um, site for a CCC camp. So all that story gets told together in about an hour long walk and it's, it's really accessible. Um, you don't have to be um, someone who can hike 10 miles to be able to access that story and that hike and see all those things. That, that's a really great one. Um, and the interpreters and, um, and the cultural resource specialists in the park are really great at telling. They're great storytellers um, and they have you know, the archives have these great materials that then they use um, while uh, conducting those hikes. So I would really recommend that one. Um, there, it, if one is interested in going to see one of the old cabins that they kept, um, the uh, uh, George Corbin cabin that's on Nicholas, Nicholson Hollow Trail, it's really interesting, and it's uh, run by the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club, and um, you can reserve it and, and stay in there um, and then learn a little bit more um, about um, the family that lived there. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty primitive, but it's a really great place to stay. And then there are lots of, uh, there's several cemeteries in the area that you can find. Um, White Oak Canyon Trail off of it has several places where you can see old family sites and Nicholson Hollow Trail. Um, and you know if you're if you're okay with bushwhacking, the Rose River Trail is a really great one. Um, and then if you're just hiking on any uh, trail, if you see um, places where there's lots of periwinkle, that's usually where there was a, a cemetery. So even if you don't see evidence of a of um, headstones, you might see some periwinkle growing. People would plant that um, usually at a grave site. And the other kind. Other kinds of evidence besides maybe an old chimney um, or there's an old truck near Nicholson Hollow Trail, um, and but if it gets overgrown, it's a little harder to see. But there's also some, um, if you see a box boxwood bush that was planted there or daffodils, um, and so there's some things you can see on some of the trails that 
are evidence of, of people having lived there. Um, the Bird Visitor Center has a really great exhibit um, that has a little film and tells the story about um, the relocation of families um, from the park. So there, I think there's an effort to try to make sure that that history is um, honored and told. And one of the people I've worked with a lot who I really appreciate is a park ranger named Claire Comer, and her family was displaced from Shenandoah Park. And she's just a great um, example of this sort of simultaneous love of the park and dedication to the park. She spent her career there at Shenandoah National Park, and yet she also has this family history. And um, so she's a really great um, advocate for understanding the history of the park and how that can enhance one's experience um, as, a, as a hiker, as a person enjoying the uh, natural resources of, uh, resources of the park. As a person thinking about how we tell stories about our history and the way we do that, um, it, it's really interesting to me that, you know, because we're co it, it's just not a black and white story. It's a really rich and complicated story, which brings up feelings of maybe sadness and in some cases resentment and bitterness. But at the same time, it brings up sense of pride and history and honoring that history and reverence. And um, one of the men I interviewed, um, Mr. Ellerby, he's, he maintains a family cemetery um, now. And, you know, so he, he loves to tell stories about um, his grandparents' experiences and having to be moved out and... Um, they're dramatic, um, interesting stories, and yet he goes up into the park and maintains the family cemetery um, and has, a, you know, has access to to the um, to the grounds and is one of the people trusted with maintaining um, federal property. And so that's a really interesting um, relationship. There's also a group of people in the eight counties who are affected by Shenandoah Park called the Blue Ridge Heritage Heritage Project. And they're in the process of constructing memorials to the families who, whose homes were in the park. And they're just really great memorials that list all the family names, at least that we know of. And so they are, I think one of the first ones was erected in Madison County. And it's a beautiful little stone memorial that to me evokes the look of an old chimney. Um, I think it was I think it might have been designed that way, and it just lists family names. It's very simple, but it's one way that area, communities are trying to make a statement about the, the relationship of the counties, um, the surrounding counties, in forming Shenandoah National Park. And so citizens are remain really interested. The historical societies in each of the counties have information. Madison County Historical Society has a wonderful exhibit with old photographs of Shenandoah Park. And so there's a lot of interest around and um, making that history available to people. So there's, you know, ostensibly a national park and land conservation um, and preserving the scenery in Shenandoah National Park is a good thing for, and, and as it's you know, pointed out in the National Park Service's mission is to, you know, preserve for future generations. And so that's all a good thing. Um, and, and I think a lot of us would 
would agree it's a good thing, but the cost of the families who want, who did not want to leave is still part of that story. And when I was interviewing people about this story, I really was struck by the how those two feelings could operate at once, that there was this love of this their family's history in the park. They love the idea that their family had contributed to the park, and yet at the same time there was a sense of uh, either bitterness or sadness or at least some somber feeling about their families having to be forced out of their home. And that really interests me and part of how I, when I hike in the park, how I feel about it, that I feel like the land is really, it's hallowed, I think. You know, there are people who used to live there the cemeteries that are in the park and some of the remaining home sites there really point out the fact that there were people who lived there and loved living there. And so I think then it makes it really important to continue to advocate for having adequate amount of funding for our national park so that we can continue to honor that history. I'm a member of the Shenandoah National Park Trust. I'm a trustee for the fundraising organization that works with Shenandoah National Park. And it's really amazing to see. I think anyone who visits Shenandoah National Park feels great when they're there. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's. I feel a sense of reverence while I'm there, which I might feel even if I didn't know the whole history. I mean, it's just awe-inspiring. And I think that's the point of our national park is to help us um, experience nature in a really big way, in an un- unencumbered way, um, in a quiet way. And Shenandoah National Park is one of those places. And people who have visited are visiting for the very first time feel that way. People who grew up around there and have hiked all the trails many times feel that way. And that's what I love about it. That's what I love about all the parks I've been to is that it, it there's something there for everyone. Um, and for me... I've had, in doing this research, I've had moments of real sadness learning individual family stories, and yet that hasn't shaken my devotion to the idea of conserving land so that we can appreciate the magnificence of, of what we see there in the mountains and the waterfalls and how important that is um, for us as human beings. And so um, while I think my, you know, I knew all those stories growing up, but learning even more deeply about them, that's only increased my sense of commitment to making sure that the federal budget remains intact for supporting our national parks. And you might know that um, every year the budget for national parks gets cut. And every year that means that uh, national parks are having to scramble to figure out how to maintain the number of people who come there to visit and you know figure out how to maintain access into the park and so knowing that people had a history there and that it was such a um amazing and interesting and complicated story um deepens my own uh commitment to try to make sure that then what they had to leave remains um, so that, that their story remains honored, that we can keep going back and appreciating uh, the kind of beauty of the park. When I walk in the park, I feel like I'm walking on hallowed ground, and that just makes my experience more vital, more special, 
um, I, I stop and pay attention more. Not, not I don't always think about families while I'm hiking. Um, I might be thinking about, uh, you know, sore thighs and, <laughs> and, you know, making sure I place my foot, uh, carefully on a rock when, you know, hiking up the, um, waterfalls. But, um, it just makes me stop and pay attention more. And that's made my experience all the more. Uh, rich for it. The idea portrayed here when one visits the park like we do as tourists, we are there to enjoy some hikes with our kids, look at the stars, and have a nice long weekend together. There is a historical context there, and some of it is a heroic story in terms of the Civilian Conservation Corps building the infrastructure of the park and the calamity of the Great Depression. But also, there are some tough stories that we have to reckon with. Some of these homesteaders were forcibly removed from their land or removed from their homes against their will. It is something to keep in mind to have that historical context for a much richer experience when you are visiting the park. Like visitors today, the people forced to leave their homes shared a great love for these mountains. This brings us to the end of our series on Shenandoah National Park. Thank you to Sarah Gregg, Katrina Powell, and Audrey Horning for their participation in helping us understand the complicated story of how the park came to be established. For more information, check out Sarah Gregg's book, Managing the Mountains, Land Use Planning, the New Deal, and the Creation of a Federal Landscape in Appalachia. Also, The Anguish of Displacement, the Politics of Literacy, in the Letters of Mountain Families in Shenandoah National Park by Katrina Powell. Answer at Once, Letters of Mountain Families in Shenandoah National Park, 1934-1938 by Katrina Powell. And In the Shadow of Ragged Mountain by Audrey Horning. You may find show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Please follow us on Facebook and Twitter and write us a review on iTunes. Our next series will be on Zion National Park. Thanks for listening. Bye now.